Good evening, Elby. Good evening, Andrew. Good evening, everyone. You'll like what we have in store for you tonight. <laughs> hey, it's December. It's time for Christmas. Yule. Not like Yule Brenner, but like Yule, like like the Nordic word Yule, you know? Y- Yule? Yule. Yeah, Yule log. Oh. It's December. You'll like... Anyway, never mind. Carry on. So happy holidays, everybody. We've got a really cool movie for you tonight. Is that because it's snowing in that movie? Kinda. Is that what you mean by cool? Sort of. Does it wear shades? No. Does it say deal with it? No. No. Okay, so those are two cool things. Oh, no, it's just cool. Well, what is it? It's Crimson Peak. Would you be mine? A new love. You're so different. From who? Everyone. An old house. Trust me. Never go below this level. One evil secret. Has anyone died in this house? Love makes monsters of us all. Now. You're imagining things. Only she holds the key to unlock the secret. Of Crimson Peak. Rated R. So, it's December. Yeah. Crimson Peak is is a ghost story. Yeah. Horror movies in December are usually like slashers. Yeah, you have your Silent Night, Bloody Night. Black Christmases. Santa Slay. Yeah, Silent Night, Deadly Night, the entire series. You know, just side note here, Mickey Rooney railed against the Silent Night, Deadly Night movie when it came out in the early 80s and then starred in the fifth sequel. Mickey Rooney? Yeah. Mickey Rooney. Like... From Breakfast at Tiffany's. You disturb me! <laughs> yes, that's the one movie you pick, <laughs> pick that he's you know, notorious for. Yes, Mickey Rooney. Yeah, he was like, oh, this movie is offensive! And then stars in one of its sequels. Huh. Yeah, don't, I don't get it. Imagine that. Yeah, so anyway. So, okay, Crimson Peak, right? It's Christmas. Why would we ever talk about Crimson Peak? At Christmas. Uh, it's red. Crimson is red, yes. There's a mountain. It's peak. Yes. It's snowing. Why? It's definitely not a Christmas-themed movie. I don't think it even acknowledges a time of year. No, not at all. Okay. Except, except by having it set in a cold climate where there's snow. It doesn't say, the month is December. <laughs> the month is January. It doesn't do any of that. So the reason is, there is this long-standing tradition, which is kind of forgotten, of telling ghost stories on Christmas Eve. And that tradition goes way far back, dating as far back as Shakespeare and even older. Isn't there like a Christmas song made popular by Andy Williams? The reference is the ghost stories? Yeah. There'll be scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. So we typically associate this ghost story tradition with the Victorian era, and uh, most famously within that is Dickens. A Christmas Carol. Right. Which, for a long time, was my favorite holiday story at all. Well, it's really good. Yeah. I like it when they try to get really dark with it, and get spooky and scary with it, and special effectsy with it, and it's very rare that they do that. Right. Like that, um, that animated version from the 70s? Well, 
That just was weird and creepy art. Yeah. Like Scrooge has the special effects. Oh, I gotcha. Get into. But still, there's something wrong with that one too. Anyway, it's it's very difficult to narrow in the best Christmas Carol, so I'm not gonna try. <laughs> and we're also not talking about a Christmas Carol. No, we're not. That's just the prime example of a Christmas ghost tale. Right. But, you know, like, just about anything else that we celebrate, it has its roots in pagan belief. Hmm. Do tell. Well, it, it has to do with the winter solstice. Just about every time in the pagan year, there's a holiday that signifies a very thin barrier between the living and the dead, like the realms so the of the living. the dead shall rise when it's spring. The <laughs> yeah. dead shall rise yeah, yeah, when yeah. it's October sometime yeah. in October. The dead shall rise on July 4th. Right. So that that barrier is very thin and ghosts can and try to finish up their unsettled business, just like Marley's ghost in Christmas Carol. But, you know, it's not just Dickens. Uh, there was a 19th century humorist named Jerome K. Jerome. Hmm. Did the K stand for cool? Maybe. Jerome Cool Jerome. Yeah, he totally seems like he would be like an 80s breakdancer guy <laughs> or old school rapper. JKJ. Uh, I don't think so at all. Okay, well, of course, because it's the late 19th century. Of right. course he's not breakdancing. Right. So here's a little excerpt from his introduction to his book called Told After Supper. Jerome K. Jerome. Told After Supper. 1891. Abridged. It was Christmas Eve. Of course, as a mere matter of information, it is quite unnecessary to mention the date at all. It always is Christmas Eve in a ghost story. Christmas Eve is the ghost's great gala night. On Christmas Eve, they hold their annual fate. On Christmas Eve, Everybody in Ghostland who is anybody, or rather, speaking of ghosts, one should say, I suppose, every nobody who is any nobody comes out to show himself or herself to see and to be seen, to promenade about and display their winding sheets and grave clothes to each other, to criticize one another's style and to sneer at one another's complexion. Christmas Eve Parade, as I expect they themselves term it, is a function, doubtless, eagerly prepared for and looked forward to throughout Ghostland, especially the swagger set, such as the murdered barons, the crime-stained countesses, and the earls who came over on the Conqueror and assassinated their relatives, and died raving mad. Hollow moans and fiendish grins are, one may be sure, energetically practiced up. Blood-curdling shrieks and marrow-freezing gestures are probably rehearsed for weeks beforehand. Rusty chains and gory daggers are overhauled and put into good working order. And sheets and shrouds laid carefully by from the previous year's show are taken down and shaken out and mended and aired. Oh, it is a stirring night in Ghostland, the night of December 24th. Why on Christmas Eve of all nights of the year, I never could myself understand. It is invariably one of the most dismal of nights to be out in. Cold, 
muddy and wet. And besides, at Christmas time, everybody has quite enough to put up with in the way of a houseful of living relations, without wanting the ghosts of any dead ones mooning about the place, I am sure. There must be something ghostly in the air of Christmas. Something about the close, muggy atmosphere that draws up the ghosts. Like the dampness of the summer rains brings out the frogs and snails. And not only do the ghosts themselves always walk on Christmas Eve, but live people always sit and talk about them on Christmas Eve. Whenever five or six English-speaking people meet around a fire on Christmas Eve, they start telling each other ghost stories. Nothing satisfies us on Christmas Eve but to hear each other tell authentic anecdotes about spectres. It is a genial festive season, and we love to muse upon graves, and dead bodies, and murders, and blood. All of these things happen on Christmas Eve. They are all told of on Christmas Eve. For ghost stories to be told on any other evening than the evening of the 24th of December would be impossible in English society as at present regulated. Therefore, in introducing the sad but authentic ghost stories that follow hereafter, I feel that it is unnecessary to inform the student of Anglo-Saxon literature that the date on which they were told and on which the incidents took place was Christmas Eve. Nevertheless, I do so. And you know, even American writers got in on this. Who? Washington Irving, for example. That's the jack-o'-lantern head guy. Yeah, in the same collection of stories that The Legend of Sleepy Hollow is in is a story called Old Christmas, where Irving talks about people gathered around the fire speaking about old superstitions and ghost stories and different traditions. So, Andrew, I say again, why are we talking about Crimson Peak at Christmas? Because it is a Victorian ghost tale. It's a winter tale. Yes, sorry, that too. (laughs) Yeah, you are correct. But to me, there's just something about the cold, snowy, bleak, just kind of, I don't know, desperate days of winter. It just warms your heart. (laughs) In a way, but it's uh, more suited to telling a frightening story. Huh. Well, being that most of America, much like me, within the last 40 years have been exposed mostly to the one story of Dickens' Christmas Carol, what other stories are out there that are similar? Well, I don't exactly know of anything that takes place specifically at Christmas, but there are plenty that are in the winter. Shakespeare has A Winter's Tale. Henry James does Turn of the Screw. Even The Raven, you know, Poe's Raven. Yeah. He mentions the bleak December. Ah, uh, distinctly I remember it was in the bleak December and the separate dying ember brought its ghost upon right. the and, and now in modern times, there's The Shining. Yeah, that is set. Still, that sidesteps Christmas, I think. It doesn't necessarily have to be Christmas, is what I'm saying. Sure. Just wintry and bleak and cold and frightening. And snowy. Snowy. We've gone on and we've gotten gremlins. We've gotten uh, that movie Ghost Story was a wintry ghost story. Those old men. Mm-hmm. Windchill. Yeah. I'm sure there's more that are all set in the winter. Yeah. We'll be talking about one next show. Oh, yeah. Stay tuned. <laughs> We're not talking about stay tuned. <laughs> 
That's your other show, probably. Yeah, that's the other show sometime. So, Crimson Peak. Yeah. What's up with that? Well, since it was my idea to watch it for this, let me explain why. Okay. It's a gothic romance. Like Hot Topic. Like, with strappy boots, like, with... 30,000 buckles? No. Like industrial music? No, I'm talking about the gothic tradition of literature. What's literature? <laughs> it's it's a thing that 14-year-old girls read. They also shop at Hot Topic. Uh, not the kind I'm talking about. Oh, okay. Bookish 14-year-old girls. <laughs> okay, okay. Carry on. It's the same tradition of something like Wuthering Heights or Jane Eyre, which is really funny that I love now because when I was a 14-year-old girl, I did not like those types of things. Yeah, you were more into Demon Knight. Yeah, I was so anti-Jane Austen and stuff. Which is also ironic. You didn't do the, the Hot Topic thing. I know you didn't do the Hot Topic thing, but your interests lied more where Hot Topic was then than where Hot Topic is now. <laughs> yeah. But as I've grown older, I've come to appreciate the gothic romance more, and I love Crimson Peak because of it. Okay. Andrew, why don't you go ahead and summarize Crimson Peak for the folks out there? Okay, I'll try not to get too spoilery with it. Crimson Peak tells a tale of an entrepreneur and his sister who are in dire straits. Their estate is crumbling. It's a huge place on this big mound of clay called Crimson Peak, and they are trying to mine the clay. This is where all of their family fortune has gone, and they're just at the home stretch of completing a digging machine to dig this red clay out of the ground, but they need some money, so they go and try to con an American and his daughter in order to get money from them to fund this machine. But a harbinger, long ago a ghost, visited the young girl who they're trying to seduce and said, Beware, Crimson Peak. And that's where I'm leaving it right now. Okay. This film was directed by Guillermo del Toro. Yes. Whom I kind of, you know, I really admire him. I, I really respect him. And I know that he is genuinely creative. Mm-hmm. I don't really like his movies that much. Hmm. Well, okay. You did Kronos first. Yeah. Very slow, very quiet. Uh-huh. Very interesting, but at the same time, slow and quiet. And also mm-hmm. there's a language barrier in it. It's in Spanish. So... I can see why you might not latch onto that. Then he did Mimic, which wasn't his story, and the studio got in the way of his director's cut and all that stuff. So one way or the other, it may not be your bag. But after that, Devil's Backbone, which is another Spanish film, but that one was a lot better. However, when I watched it the second time, put me to sleep straight. Like the mm-hmm. first time I was enamored with it. I was just like, this is, I've never seen a ghost story told like this. And he, by the way, loves to use ghosts in this way. Oh yeah, totally. He's all about... A um, benevolent ghost. Right. Which is a bit of a spoiler, but he likes to use his ghosts in a way that are absolutely terrifying, but they're not quite what they seem. Mm-hmm. So he did that with Devil's Backbone and then Pan's Labyrinth, another thing about fantasy and magical realism and all that stuff. Pan's Labyrinth, to me, was super overhyped, except all of the special effects mm-hmm. were great and awesome, and his cast was good and all that. And the Hellboy movies, they are what they are. Also fancy, fun special effects and so on. Mm-hmm. Pacific Rim is the last one that he did before this. It is a giant monster movie. It is what it is as well. So of his catalog right there, of the movies that he's directed, 
you don't like any of them. You just, what's the deal? They don't exactly speak to me. I really can appreciate his work. And I think he is a really amazing person. Like, I think he has great ideas. Every interview I've read with him, he just sounds so genuine and honest and forthright. Mm-hmm. I'd really like to be his friend. Oh, that's cool. Tom Hiddleston, who stars in Crimson Peak, he described Guillermo as a big Mexican bear. I don't know if he's... I mean, he's big because he's kind of chubby, <laughs> but I don't know how tall he is. I wonder if he's a tall person. Uh, I don't know, but don't. I'd like to have a Mexican bear as my friend, so... <laughs> okay. Well, I like Guillermo del Toro's work in total, but every... Oh, I left out one of them. Blade 2. Oh. <laughs> which everybody says is the best Blade, but to me, I actually don't think it's the best Blade. But it is a Blade movie that brought more unique to the table. It just has a pacing problem to me. Which a lot of his movies tend to have a pacing problem. I think that's my main problem with the movies is they don't hold my attention completely. It's not really the movie's fault or Guillermo's fault. It's kind of my attention span's fault. Hmm. But they are always very slow, kind of melancholy, very deliberate. Mm -hmm. And it's really well crafted. Especially Crimson Peak. Yes. Which is my reason for getting through the whole list. Crimson Peak tends to be the one that I said is firing on all cylinders. It's not a super rapid, fast movie, but it's the one that doesn't seem to have too many pacing issues. Right. You know, what I also learned about Guillermo del Toro, he really loves Henry James. Henry James wrote Turn of the Screw, which I mentioned earlier was one of the winter tales. Guillermo really loves what Henry James has to say about gothic romance. Essentially, the idea is that that there is a clash between the past and the future. Hmm. And a ghost represents the past. Yes. So all the characters in gothic romance tend to look towards the past and reflect upon it or they can't get away from it. Okay. And you can see that in Crimson Peak. Hiddleston's character trying to make the clay machine is looking to the future. Uh He's actually oblivious to the ghosts right doesn't know anything about the ghosts actually most characters don't know anything about the ghosts. only our main character edith does she's the only person who sees any of the ghosts she's visited as a young child and then years later when she's of age beware crimson peak right everybody else is oblivious to the ghosts in fact there's no hint of ghosts in their lives it's just in hers right These characters are so complex. That is one of the reasons I really love this film. Guillermo del Toro does this really interesting thing where he will write 10 or 15 pages of backstory on each character to give to his actors. Not only the actors, but the entire production team, like costuming, production designers, like everybody Mm -hmm. gets these bios and they're very detailed really, really, really show who these characters should be. Every little detail. Yeah. And Tom Hiddleston's character, Thomas, is very interesting because he keeps looking to the past. And what his past is, is this relationship that he has with his sister, Lucille. Yes. And he kind of wants to break away from it, except he can't because he has this strange betrothal to her. They're linked to an event that took place. Yeah. That she is responsible for. And after that... They became closer and closer and closer. And I think it's actually, well, they're both a part of that. But I think given that we see more of how her character plays out, that she's the person who instigates all of everything. Mm -hmm. Which is actually interesting writing, too. So he keeps looking towards the past. He can't get away from her, right? Mm -hmm. He really, really wants to. And he meets Edith, the American girl, and she represents everything to him. Like, she is his bright future. Ticket out of there. 
Yeah, which is very interesting because it's normally switched. It's usually the girl who needs the ticket out of there. Mm -hmm. Everything's actually flipped, really. You're right. It's usually the big bad man. Now it's a big bad woman. Now you have a sympathetic bad person in Tom Hiddleston Mm -hmm. who it's much more subtle than that because you know that he's a bad guy when you're watching this thing. Right, right, right. And it slowly grows onto you that he's sort of trapped and that his motivations are actually a bit more complicated than just greed or whatever. So that's very interesting. So I guess while we're talking about characters, let me go ahead and, and talk about the female characters in this film who it's very refreshing because these female characters are fully realized. They are completely fleshed out. Jessica Chastain plays Lucille, the sister, also very complex. And Mia Wasikowska, I'm very proud of myself for saying her name. (laughs) Uh, She plays Edith, who is the young idealistic American girl who has been seduced by Sir Thomas. Right. So Lucille, the sister, let me talk about her first. She's the antagonist. Except is she really? Um, What? I mean, she is, obviously. She is the villain of the story. Yes. But it's kind of complicated because it goes into that area of, is she sympathetic? I don't think she's sympathetic at all. Well, I kind of do because she is in pain. She has this loyalty to her brother, to her family. The family name. Right, right. Keeping the name alive or else the business is going to go under and you'll be ruined. Yeah. Um, It's kind of this delicate determination that she has. I don't know. She's kind of suffocated by it. And in her own suffocation, she starts to suffocate others. So I kind of feel sorry for her. Well, you can feel sorry for somebody who's doing terrible, horrible things, but this is a toxic character. She's a toxic person who is really selfish. Yeah, she's, she's motivated by selfishness. Yeah, she's really narcissistic and possessive. And yes. She she really does have terrible so qualities. pain aside, I mean, everybody feels pain. The worst people ever have felt the exact same emotions that you have that does not make those worst people ever sympathetic. It just makes them at least relatable. Relatable, but pathetic. Not sympathetic, though. (laughs) Now, the character that I am somewhat sympathetic to is Tom Hiddleston, and that's a hint of sympathy because of what you said. He, He seems to be trapped in the relationship with his sister. He wants to get out by the end of it, and he is a tragic character. Right. They're both suffering together. Sure. But one is the person who's causing the suffering. So do you think she's gaslighting him in a way? Well, absolutely. I mean, he wants to further the business name, except like their whole goal was to make this machine so that they could get all the clay off of their land that their dad left them, who was a horrible man, right? Mm-hmm. Actually, their parents were bad. Right. Their parents were absolutely awful. And the only thing good they ever did was leave them this parcel of land, which was full of clay that they thought that they could just mine and send off to whomever needs clay. Yeah. But it's been difficult doing. So their whole existence on Crimson Peak, Crimson Peak itself is this big anchor holding them there. Mm-hmm. She wants to stay there. Right. With him. Mm-hmm. She's possessive, so she doesn't want that change. She's also responsible for horrible things in their past. Right. So it's, it's all this power thing. And he, being the slightly sympathetic character comes to realize that he needs to get out of there. He's been going along with his sister's doing for so long, seducing a bunch of other women to get their money 
for this machine that's finally, finally gonna be made, finished. And he doesn't wanna do that because he really likes this girl, Edith. Right. This girl's different, at least to him. Right. So that itself, like you being the judge, that's not sympathetic. He's judging her, you know, you're worth living and I think you're cute or whatever. That's that's what he's thinking, right? That's not admirable. But what is, not even admirable at all, but what is sympathetic is him saying, oh crap, this is not good. All that we've been doing is not good. Let's just sell it all and go away, leave. Right, I'm done. And it could be through fatigue. It's been years doing this. It could be through looking at somebody better than they are mm-hmm. and saying, I enjoy in a selfish way and also just in the way that positivity is brought into somebody's life. You you feel that warmth and radiance off of that positivity. So she's being the positive influence. So when you say complex, it's very complex. Yes. Tom Hiddleston's character could be still being a super selfish piece of crap by saying, let's stop the mayhem and killing and Mm -hmm. screw our property and just leave. He could still be doing selfishness and self-preservation, but urged on by the warmth that this girl has brought on. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. The movie's really pretty, too. Oh, I know. Cinematography is really good. The color of the lighting, actually, is really what I'm getting at. The lighting on the sets is quite amazing. I don't know if they use the colors on set, but what we see are very bright and vibrant colors that don't sear your screen. There's still good shadows across it. There's still good balance. Right. It's really, really good looking. Right. Use of color was uh, on my list, too, of things to talk about. I don't know if you noticed this, but after watching things like The Neon Demon and stuff, I, I, I really, really, really have started to pay attention to... The visual art of filmmaking? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, like, uh, duh. But... Yeah, well, because films are a visual medium. Yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that's kind story. of... That's, that's an understatement. But what I mean is that I have really, really started to think about what color is being used and why. And this film is interesting because there are, I think, like three... Yeah, really three different sections in this film. The part at the beginning when they're in America, and then after Thomas and Edith get married and they go back to Crimson Peak, and then the ending of the film where it's all snowy and Mm -hmm. and stuff. Okay, so the America part at the beginning is mostly gold. It's the sepia sort of. Yeah. Almost sepia. It's gold, it's color, but it's sepia-ish. It's warm brownish kind of uh, mustardy but yeah warm the middle part where they're at crimson peak in in that house Mm -hmm. it changes to blue teal yeah like kind of melancholy colors but also still kind of bright yeah there's there's some contrast moments where when she's visited by ghosts again right i hate the term i hate it i hate it but the use of color makes the ghosts pop (laughs) i hate the term as a graphic designer i hate making it pop hate it yeah but that's what happens here uh-huh. uh and, and it's good mm-hmm. it's it really enhances those scenes the the use of color in there but that section of the film is very dank damp and moist it's wet all over right and gross and moths yeah the black moths everywhere uh-huh and then at the end it turns to white it's yeah. like stark white and red because the clay why they call this place crimson peak is during the winter mm-hmm. when the snow falls and hits the, the peak the moisture from that snow as it's melting seeps red and it doesn't stay white it just goes red and there's also blood involved 
Oh yeah. In the story. In the story, but that's like, <laughs> yeah. Every winter, my my front lawn just starts bleeding. That's not quite what yeah. they're talking about. So I, I find that really interesting that they're sort of themes to the color usage it's brilliant i wish that we had seen this movie in the theater yeah i did too because really honestly when it came out i was just kind of like ho-hum well, about it because of your past history with guillermo del toro's work right right that's why i wanted to see this you didn't you were like nah it's guillermo del toro i don't care too much which again fully acknowledge guillermo del toro is very talented i'm not i will not ever say a bad word about guillermo del toro i just think his movies are kind of boring <laughs> but i love this one yeah i love crimson peak so much <laughs> i love it so much <laughs> Now, another really interesting thing about this film, and I keep saying interesting, but it it really, I don't know another word, but fascinating, maybe. If you were walking by it, you would stop and look for a while and just stare a bit, whatever you're going to be talking about. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Uh You just try to soak it in. Right, exactly. The thing that I would like to absorb is the house, the manor of Crimson Peak. So what about that place? It's a once beautiful, once grandiose mansion. It's hundreds of years old. It is beautiful. It's gorgeous. Except it's dilapidated. Yeah, they've not done their upkeep. No, they have not. And a lot of it has to do with that clay mud. There's like a sinkhole at some point. There's a huge hole in the roof. Yeah, and and it just snows inside. Yeah, everything's just really run down. And the weird thing about it is there's something about that house that makes it feel alive. It's like breathing and and watching you. Hmm. And maybe it's the ghosts in it. Maybe it's not. But that house... I would not be comfortable staying in it. I mean, not just because it's run down. Well, I I think Del Toro is deliberate in his designing of these things to be as if it's a presence in itself. Yeah. Especially since he's a genre nut. Mm -hmm. And he likes these old things that this movie is somewhat a reference to, or or this movie is a legacy of these old gothic tales and other haunted house stories Mm -hmm. that came well before, what, The Haunting in the 90s (laughs) was the last time we really had a big, elaborate haunted house. And I'm not counting House on Haunted Hill because that's an insane asylum whatever right so the haunting was a big thing but that's lame that's a lame remake of a great movie Mm -hmm. so those movies that he's referencing are the original haunting and other things that were made back in the 60s all through the mid 70s with the hammer and amicus movies yeah so he's making this this house he designs it now you can design a house as opposed to just finding one that matches his idea of this strange presence that is itself the house right that place was built they didn't find a structure that was already you know uh, already a location they built that entire home which is just commendable all the work that must have gone into that Right. And the ghosts performed by one man. Oh, yes. Doug Jones. Old reliable is what I like to call Doug Jones. Yeah. He's 6'4". I'm 6'4". He's 6'4". (laughs) You, sir, are no Doug Jones. I am no Doug Jones. I have enormous hands. They're wide. Why am I mentioning my hands being so enormous and wide? Because your hands are the opposite of Doug Jones's hands. Well, mine aren't stumpy or anything. They're just like big giant hands. He has the longest, creepiest, slender, scary 
fingers I've ever seen in my life. In every Guillermo del Toro movie that he's in, he utilizes them in a scene where he just wraps his hands around the corner of a wall or something. <laughs> and it's so amazingly creepy and it's just performance. It's just right. an actor performing with his hands. Yes. And it's amazing. Yes. On top of that, it's how those hands are dressed. The makeup that's on it. Yeah. The clothes that are on Doug Jones. In fact, he's playing lady ghosts. Doesn't matter. Doug Jones can do it. Doug Jones can do anything. Doug Jones can do it. That should be his tagline. Hire <laughs> Doug Jones. Doug Jones can do it. Pretty much. I look at his hands and I'm kind of envious of his hands. I'm not necessarily sure exactly why. Because I'm not <laughs> in, in the film industry or anything. And I'm plenty happy with my hands. As big as they are and whatever, I'm happy with them. You just want some delicate hands sometimes. Not delicate, but like maybe I just want to creep you out. Well, you can creep me out in other ways. By existing. So Doug Jones does a wonderful job as the ghost. I mean, you wouldn't recognize him except by his hands. But he's been in all, a lot of Guillermo's movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was Abe Sapien yep. in, in The Hellboys. Yep, in Pan's Labyrinth. Hands, hands. Hands, eye, eyeball hands. Still, more hands work. Hands. But yeah, this movie has a lot that's just superb about it. Yep. Now, you, you still might fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a deliberate pace to it as well. Because it's a Guillermo del Toro movie. I think he's got the movies that are most personal to him, I think, are the ones that are more deliberately paced. Mm. And the ones that are more popcorn are, are obviously going to be less deliberately paced. Yeah, that's like the, true. the Hellboy movies and the Blade and the Pacific Rim thing. Yeah. Those aren't as deliberately paced. But that's by design. He wants you to just live in that world for as long as possible. Yes. I kind of want to live in Crimson Peak. <laughs> I do. It's, man, it's so against me. I mean, like I said, like I was never that that kind of, you know, bookish, I don't know, dorky girl. Well, I, not really dorky, but like I was, I was never that. The literature that I liked was like James Joyce and, and things like that. So I, I never read Wuthering Heights. I never read Jane Eyre. I never read Pride and Prejudice. I, I was supposed to, but I didn't. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. So really, it's going to take a lot for me to be really immersed in something like this. And man, it's just so effective. So Andrew, thank you for indulging me in this episode. I know you wanted to do a, a specifically Christmas movie, but I think it's really cool about the telling ghost stories on Christmas Eve tradition. And I'd like to encourage us to do that. And also everybody out there. Well, I don't really want to tell the stories, but I would like to watch them. Okay, that's, that's fine. That's our storytelling medium. They, yeah. It used to be by the campfire talking. Uh-huh. And now you can just put a campfire on your on your YouTube <laughs> and watch a movie next to that if you don't have a fireplace. Right. So you can have a fake crackling YouTube phone fire yeah. while you're watching Crimson yeah. Peak. That's a stupid idea. <laughs> <laughs> Just watch a spooky movie during the winter time. Yeah. So everybody, thank you for listening and happy Christmas to you. Happy holidays. Don't forget you can like, rate, and review. Tell your friends. Vincent Price's laugh. Google it. Have a great night, everybody. Mad tidings of great despair, everybody. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by Ouch My Ego. Visit OuchMyEgo.com. It is a Victorian ghost tale.